What up, boys and ghouls? Welcome back to r slash no sleep, where I read creepy, scary, and downright messed up stories. Today's episode has four separate stories. One about a nursing home resident who begins acting strange. A second one about a dying man. Our third, a boy who went missing for 20 years. And lastly, a dark memory from growing up Mormon. So if you're ready, sit back, relax, and get ready for your skin to crawl. This story is called, Camille Wasn't Herself Yesterday. I'm a nursing student. I just finished my second year. Over the summer, I've been doing a co-op internship thing where we were placed in a care setting of our choice. I don't know why, but I picked the seniors' home option. They were more exciting places to be, but they didn't resonate with me like this one did. Guess it's something to do with how I let my great-aunt die. Off topic. Anyway, the elderly have been an absolute joy to work with. One of them, Camille, usually won bingo nights. She had terrific luck, I guess, but she wasn't popular with those who took bingo seriously. I.e. a lot of them. Camille could have passed for a 30-year-old with how energetic she always was. She was also everyone's unofficial mom, if you know what I mean. Even ours, me and my fellow interns. Camille was loved by all. We came to love her too. Except yesterday. I don't know... I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't even know who to talk to about this. The police? A doctor? I was setting up the dishes for breakfast when Camille walked into the hall. I had decided to come in early so I could spend some time watching a Friends rerun on the nice big communal TV before we started our duties for the day. So, there was no one else there. Just us two. Camille walked oddly. Like, she didn't know where to place her feet. She was staring at her own hands. I got a little freaked out, so I asked her if she was okay. We are well past a first-name basis at this point. Practically BFFs. She looked at me, and this weird look of horror came over her. She ran up to me, and I nearly dropped the dish I was holding. She didn't look like she wanted to hurt me. She was scared. Almost to tears, she rubbed my shoulders and sighed in relief. Oh, oh my god, you're still here, she said. I was understandably confused. I came in early, I responded, trying to make sense of what she meant. She shook her head vigorously, gave me a long hug, which I eventually returned. Not sure why. When she released me, she was a lot more stoic, but I'd never seen that look in her eyes. Listen to me, Austin, she said quietly. Do you have a gun? What? No! I was so not on the same page as her, and I started to get annoyed. E you need a gun, Camille advised. Something, something small, and, and don't stay at your home tomorrow night. Go to a hotel. Don't tell anyone which hotel or motel. I don't, I don't know. 
go, go somewhere else, not a friend's house, a motel, and keep a gun with you. I was just about to ask her if she'd been neglecting her meds, or abusing them, when Tavon walked in. Tavon was a good friend of mine, doing the co-op with me. We became friends over how we both lived in the same neighborhood coincidentally, and how we both took the same route to get here. Stuff like that. She decided to come in early too. I was really glad to see her because Camille had freaked me out. Heyo, I called, hoping she'd walk over. She did, but it did not help the situation because when Camille saw her, she did the same terrified stare, like she was looking at a ghost. Tivan squinted at Camille and tried to say good morning, but it did nothing. Camille grabbed her shoulders just like she did mine. Oh, 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 my poor girl. Oh, thank God I found you. D do you drive? Tavon blinked. Do I? Um, yeah. Why? Why? Are you okay, Camille? Please, dear, take, take the bus home today, said Camille. Oh, and don't use that stepladder today. You know how folks like to use it to clean up the upper walls of the clinic. You, you don't use it. Tell anyone else, and, and take the bus home, got it? Tavon assumed Camille was having an off day, I imagined. She just nodded, but when Camille walked out, she gave me a look of, The fuck was that about? And I shrugged. She said the same shit to me, I said, shaking my head. Told me to buy a gun and go to a motel. What? We laughed about it. It was so bizarre. Was this Camille's idea of a prank? We weren't anywhere near April 1st. I never heard of anything so ridiculous. It was so funny yesterday. Except I'm typing this on my laptop in a motel room with the 38 in my jacket and the lights off. Because the rest of the day yesterday had been fairly normal. I was working half a day, so I said goodbye to everyone around the afternoon. I drove home and had dinner with my parents. I got a phone call right before I was going to wrap up for an early night in. Tavon was in the hospital. The staff supervisor called me to let me know she'd been in an accident. When I yelled for more details, she reluctantly told me that she had slipped and fallen off of a stepladder and broken something in her spine. I tried calling her cell. No answer. I couldn't sleep. This morning, I heard the news of a major pileup on the highway. The same highway I drive on every day to and from work. This crash happened last night around 9.30. The same time Tavon would have been driving back home. She was scheduled for a full shift. I tried reaching Camille this morning, but the supervisor brushed it away and told me not to come in. I went to visit Tavon in the hospital. She can't move her legs, and the doctors don't know if she ever will. I can't handle this. I, I didn't buy a gun, because I already have one, which I brought with me to this cheap motel. I told my parents I would be sleeping over at a friend's house. I didn't tell anyone about this, just as Camille instructed. I should be safe. I don't know from what or why, but... I can't get rid of the feeling that this was no coincidence. Except, something's 
bothering me. If Camille told me not to stay at my own house tonight, then should my parents be there? I missed a call from my mom about 20 minutes ago when I was in the shower. I've been trying to call back ever since, but there's no answer. I don't know if I should leave the motel because of how fucking terrified I am. I, even with my handgun. Should I keep trying or so? Should I go back home? Dad isn't picking up either. This story is titled, Here's What Really Happens When We Die. Hello, Earth. I'm writing this today because it feels wrong not to share it. I decided to tell you, internet strangers, because the world deserves to know what really happens when we die. I'm sure you will have a lot of questions, and you're probably wondering how I'm writing this or why I'm conscious. I will explain everything, but first, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Steven Sterling. I'm 46 years old. I have terminal lung cancer. Inoperable. That's probably the result of my heavy smoking habit. Just stay away from cigarettes. I will probably be dead tomorrow. No, I'm not dead right now, in case you're wondering. I just know what comes after tomorrow for me. I had been afraid of death before I found out what it's like. When I first got diagnosed, I was told I had three months to live. It's the maximum, according to several doctors. That means I will be dead on January 25th, 2022. I hope I have enough time to at least finish this story. During those three months, I lived in fear every day. And did they go by fast? I couldn't stop thinking about what happens when we die. It was unbearable. I was just waiting for that day to finally come without actually trying to do anything a dying person would. Now, three months have almost passed, and I've wasted every single day doing nothing. I looked at the calendar in my room today. The date was January 24th. I will most likely not make it through the night. I was lying on my bed, looking at the ceiling. I had never noticed the small crack near the chandelier. While trying to remember when was the last time I even looked up in my house, I heard a knock at the door. I was extremely confused because no one had knocked on that door for over 20 years. I was sure it was a mistake, so I continued thinking about the unimportant crack on the ceiling. Knock, knock, knock. I let out a sigh. I wasn't really in the mood for free samples or whatever the fuck they were selling. Although I was wrong. When I opened the door, no one was selling anything. It was my friend Larry. My only friend. He had found out about my situation and came to visit me. Larry? I said. He looked at me. He seemed so happy to see me. Unusually happy. Then he hugged me. Even though it was only a hug, I had never felt more loved. We got inside and I made us a cup of tea. How did you... I asked the question partly, but he understood. Oh, I, uh... I talked to your mother. He answered and took the first sip of his tea. Yeah, 
I guess I should give her a call too, it's been a long time, I said. I reached over to grab my phone when he stopped me. You know, I'm kind of in a rush. Why not talk about your mother later? He calmly replied and took another sip of his tea. You're right, sorry about that, I, I was rude, I answered. After a few minutes of silence, Larry decided to finally say something. I'm really sorry about that, Steve. Thank you, I generically replied. Have you ever wondered what happens after? He said all of a sudden. I looked at him. He was sipping his tea while looking at me. What happens after what? I asked, even though I knew what he meant. What do you think happens when we die, Steve? Silence. What a question to ask a dying person, I was thinking. I don't know. E eternal nothingness, infinite blackness, endless void, wh whatever you call it, that's what happens, I said angrily. He chuckled and took yet another sip. If you had the chance to know before it happens, would you take it? I didn't respond. I looked at my cup of tea on the table. It was still full. I hate tea. I looked around. I looked at the old clock in the living room. It's sad how it'll live longer than most of us. I looked out the window. Children were playing outside. They will die too. I tried looking at the sun. It will eventually explode. I looked at the calendar on the wall. One day until the party. I wanted to cry it all out. I wanted Larry to leave. I wanted to be alone until my eternity. That feeling of fear struck me again. What's the meaning of it all? Why me? What comes after? So many questions and yet so little answers. Yeah, I would take the chance. I finally replied. I want to know what happens after death, Larry. I said in a quavering voice. Then, he smiled. Look out the window. I was confused again. What do you mean, Larry? I asked. Just turn around, he said while still smiling. I turned around and looked through the same window, but... There weren't any kids. There was no sun. It was... The universe. I walked up to the window purple and black colors along with the sparkling stars and asteroids. Everywhere. I felt a strong urge to go out and explore it all. Another strange thing was, I didn't feel shocked or confused. It seemed like a promised land. Nothing strange, nothing unreal. I kept staring at the beautiful flow of matter. Words can't describe it. Larry, is this what it's like? I turned around. Larry was still there, still smiling. Yeah, but it's not completely the same, he replied and took the last sip of his tea. It's not the same because you will no longer need to carry that flawed body around. He stood up and smiled again. I chose to say goodbye. I won't be here for long. 
I was a little confused. Don't worry. You'll understand soon. Then, remember, possibilities are endless, not the void. I smiled, too. I watched Larry leave my house. I turned around just to look at the world from that unique perspective one more time, but... It was gone. The children were back. The sun was back. Everything went back to normal. Was that all just a dream? I was thinking. I looked at Larry's empty cup with a tea bag in it and smiled again. It wasn't a dream. I would never drink a cup of tea. I'm also not scared of death anymore. Now, when I know what it's like, what am I supposed to be afraid of? After several minutes of processing everything, the phone rang. It was my mom. Strange. She rarely calls. I picked up. I listened to my mother for about 15 seconds and then dropped the phone on the ground. She had news. Turns out that Larry Smith died in a car accident two days ago. Did I just talk to a dead person? I was thinking. No, that's, that's not possible. Did Larry even come? That must have been a dream. Then I looked to his cup again. I screamed. I, I talked to a dead person. The same feeling of fear. I felt it yet again. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! I was yelling on the floor, looking at the ceiling. Looking at the crack. Then I moved my head to the left. Ready to fall asleep. Exhausted from all the screaming. But before I closed my eyes... I was able to see through the window one last time, and it was back. The universe. I got up immediately and walked to the window. I put my hand on the glass. I definitely wasn't dreaming. This was real, and that's what comes after. I was thinking about Larry and everything he had told me. He was out there. Somewhere. I felt happy that he decided to visit his old friend during his final return to Earth. I, too, will soon be able to step outside the borders and break the limits of our bodies. I'm about to explore every star, every galaxy, every planet, without anything pulling me behind. Who knows? Maybe there's something beyond the universe itself. Something that our, again, limited brains can't even imagine, nor comprehend. I wish I could share every adventure of mine after tomorrow. But that's a journey everyone has to experience on their own. Until we meet again, I guess I should say. Goodbye, Earth. This story is called My Little Brother. Several years before I was born, my parents had another kid. His name was Billy. According to my mom's scrapbook, he looked like me. He had red hair and brown eyes, but 
He had freckles and a little birthmark on his cheek that, depending on how you looked at it, looked either like a crescent moon or a banana. When he was five years old, my parents took a hike with him in a national park. I'm not at liberty to say which one. When they were halfway down their chosen hiking trail, my dad had gone a bit ahead. A ranger had told him that a storm three nights earlier had washed away part of the trail, and my dad wanted to make sure it was still safe. While he was ahead, my mother had been digging through her backpack. Billy had said he was thirsty, and she was searching for a bottle of water. While digging, she heard him make a small sound like a gasp. When she looked up, he was gone. The rangers, police, and our family members searched for weeks. The first week, they searched for Billy. The second week, they searched for his body. After a month of no news, they were forced to accept that he was gone. They held a memorial for Billy. My mom got pregnant with me a month later. I had a fairly normal childhood. I had friends, I went to school, I played video games. The basics. But my parents told me about Billy all of the time. Not one day went by without them mentioning him to some degree. Billy always loved it when it rained. It's okay. Billy was never good at spelling either. Billy hated peach pie. As you can imagine, I was never allowed into the woods. Summer camp was out of the question. Campfires were all but forbidden, and I wasn't allowed to go on my fourth grade science trip to the nature center. I had to stay at school doing my homework with the teacher's aide. I went to college when I was 18. I decided to live at home, partially to ease my parents' anxiety and partially because it knocked a few thousand dollars off my bill. So I was at home when the ranger showed up at our door, looking like he'd seen a ghost. We found him. Those three words triggered a change in my parents. Within 30 seconds, we were all packed into the ranger's car. The anxiety, hope, and apprehension on the way was palpable. My mom was saying prayers under her breath while my dad just stared ahead. He had sweat right through his shirt by the time we got there. The ranger still looked like he'd seen a ghost, and his hands were locked on the wheel. I was still trying to figure out what was going on. I'll admit, I was a little slow that day. When we got to the police station, I recognized him from the family photo albums. He was still five but there wasn't a bruise or a mark on him. He beamed when he saw my, our parents. Mommy, daddy. The effect was instantaneous. My mom had him in her arms sobbing. My dad was sobbing too, saying that he was sorry. He was so, so sorry. I stood off to the side, not really knowing what to do. I caught the eye of one of the deputies in the room, and I could tell that he and I were thinking the same thing. How the hell had a five-year-old not only survived in the wilderness for nearly 20 years, but also stayed a five-year-old the whole time? When he was done hugging my mom and dad, he looked at me, confused. My mom and dad explained to him that I was his sister. He gave me a half-hearted hug and then ran back to mom. I smiled awkwardly. None of them noticed. 
The next two weeks were easily the oddest I'd ever had in my life. There were police officers, doctors, and more than a few reporters in the first few days. They wanted to know where he'd been the whole time, how he'd survived. Basically, all of the questions I had when I first saw him. Then, things got really interesting when the paranormal investigators, UFOologists, and similar people showed up, practically begging for an interview. I mostly sat to the side for all of this. Other than a reporter or two who had asked me questions about what had happened during the initial reunion, their words, not mine, I was left alone. To get away from it all, I spent a lot of time going out with friends. I purposely didn't say anything about what was going on at home. The vultures finally all left. Rejoicing in how quiet the house was again, I decided to take another look at Mom's scrapbook. I started looking at the pictures of Billy, and my jaw dropped. I looked up to where Billy was sitting in the kitchen, wolfing down Mom's peach pie. Mom watched him, smiling, tears threatening to fall, and I took a long look at his cheek to make sure. I stared again at the scrapbook. I could barely move. My stomach hurt. When Billy was done, he handed his plate to my mom and ran upstairs. She saw me sitting in the room and smiled. She stopped when she saw the look on my face. She came over to look at the picture I was pointing to. Mom? Didn't Billy have a birthmark on his cheek? Mom was surprised for a moment. Then she gave me one of those looks. Sweetheart... I understand that this is a bit difficult to adjust to, but Billy is back in our lives. I'm sure that after a while, you'll learn to accept him as your... I couldn't listen to the end of her lecture. I jumped off the couch and ran for the door, grabbing my purse and jacket as I went. I was in my car before I knew what I was doing. As stupid as it sounds, the first thing I did was drive to my favorite burger place. I used to get what I called... Billy lectures, a lot from mom and dad. Whenever I wanted to go somewhere by myself and they were afraid of letting me go, even if I just wanted to go to the neighbors, they would tell me the story of how Billy got lost. Once I got my license, it was a lot easier for me to go out without these lectures, but they still happened. I formed a habit of going out for a milkshake and fries when that happened. It always helped calm me down before I had to face them again. I sat in my car, inhaling a strawberry shake and thinking, there was way too much wrong with what was going on at home. First of all, how the hell is Billy still five years old after he's been missing for nearly two decades? Why was he missing his birthmark and suddenly liking peach pie? Why were mom and dad ignoring these obvious facts? And most importantly, where in the crap had he been for so long? The more I pondered it, the more my thoughts turned to the forest. If Billy had disappeared and reappeared in the same spot, then maybe there was a clue. Some tiny detail that maybe the cops and rangers had missed. Something supernatural, maybe. I tossed my food wrappers into the trash and drove a little faster than necessary to the national park. 
I got a bit of a stink eye from the ranger who let me in. I'm guessing teenagers don't usually come to national parks unaccompanied with good intentions. But I was a girl on a mission. Mom and Dad had told me the story of Billy's disappearance so many times that it was stamped into my memory. He'd vanished halfway up on Bayleaf Trail. After a few minutes of hassling with the park map, I found that Bayleaf Trail had been renamed the William, last name removed for privacy reasons, Memorial Trail. A small cross had even been placed at the exact point in the trail where he'd vanished. Oh, Billy is short for William. Perfect. I all but ran down the trail, dodging roots, weeds, and all other kinds of plant life. Apparently, this wasn't one of the most upkept trails. Makes sense. How many parents would take their kid down a hiking trail where a five-year-old mysteriously disappeared? I was both wheezing and regretting all of the crap I'd given my 12th grade gym teacher when I finally got to the cross in the trail. I took a deep breath, waited for my heart rate to return to normal, and started looking around. Over an hour went by. The light was starting to fade. It would be dark soon. I was internally yelling at myself for wasting my time here. What? Had I thought that I was a TV detective and that I'd just accidentally find a... I slipped on some muddy leaves and fell on my stomach, with my head in the foliage. I blinked trying to process what had just happened when... I saw, of all things, an iPad. I picked it up. It looked like a recent model. Out of curiosity, I tapped the screen. It opened up to an email account. Whoever the iPad belonged to, they had forgotten to lock it. Maybe they'd meant to come back for it later. I looked around in the forest in the fading light. If my parents had done anything right, they had certainly taught me the dangers of being alone out at night. I all but ran back to my car clutching the iPad like a lost treasure. I didn't feel safe in the forest. I had a terrible feeling that I was being watched. I could practically feel eyes staring at me from the shadows of the forest, like an itch under my skin. I didn't stop until I'd gotten to my car. I was completely out of breath and energy when I got back in my car. I almost spent two minutes gasping like a fish out of water. When I finally felt like my respiratory system wasn't under attack, I turned to the iPad. The most recent message was dated only a few weeks ago. I recognized the date. It was the date Billy appeared. I didn't hesitate this time. I opened it. To all employees, experiment FV3 has broken out of its confinement. Be on full alert. We have reason to believe that it can be found near or in the nearby state parks. Address listed below. All employees are to remember that this creature is fully capable of taking on the form of any human it sees, whether that be in a photo, on a screen, or in real life. Take caution, we have reasons to believe that it hunts and eats human beings. It has been known to use hypnotic suggestions to lure its victims into a false sense of security. This ability is the most effective on particularly emotional adults. Permission to kill is granted, but use all methods necessary to subdue it. We have too much invested in this project to terminate it now. Please use caution when hunting the creature in public. We do not need a repeat of what happened with the little boy 18 years ago.
management. I dropped the iPad, my heart rate doubling. That's why Billy was still five. He wasn't my brother at all. Mom and Dad wouldn't point out the minor details if they were under hypnosis. The creature must have seen Billy's missing poster and taken his form. And if that thing ate people... I started the car and practically stomped on the gas. Whatever it is, I left it alone with my parents. This story is called, Why the Mormon Church Scares Me. When I was 12 or so, the Mormon Church celebrated the 200th anniversary of the day Joseph Smith had had the experience they call the First Vision, in which, after praying in a forest, he was said to have seen God and been given the instruction that would eventually bring forth the creation of the Mormon Church. This anniversary was celebrated by collecting literally thousands of youth in a gigantic stadium for performances of songs and dances and scripture readings, and was dubbed the Day of Celebration. I grew up in Utah, and therefore, during most of my childhood, I was a devout member of the Mormon Church. So, naturally, I and the other kids in my neighborhood were given the opportunity to be in this production. We were supposed to be a part of the choir. After a few weeks of practice at the local church, they started holding large-scale practices at the conference center in the middle of Salt Lake City. That's about when my story begins to diverge from others. They had us sing a few songs, but one in particular will forever be seared into my memory. Where the others were talking about the church and its teachings, this one talked about things I'd never heard of. It was called Bring Him Forth. When we sang it, there was a heavy drum in the background, like a reverberating heartbeat as the song progressed. I don't remember all the words, but it was comprised of two verses. The first talked about how far the church had come and how they were doing the work of him. The second verse is the one I remember word for word, because singing it always tied knots in my stomach. The first was the vision, the second was the death, the third was out of mountain meadows where blood was spilt with every breath, the fourth was in Nauvoo when the temple was rebuilt, the fifth will be this gathering where below the blood was spilled, the sixth will be the temples as we spread across the land, and the seventh will open the lock to the end of man. I remember talking about it with my friends, but only one of them would even acknowledge that the song was a little strange, and that was only in passing. The others chided me for questioning the teachings of the church and said that the songs were sacred and not to be discussed. This reaction resonated within me. It was the same measured response that was given when I asked about what happens in the temples during weddings and baptisms for the dead and so on. I hadn't been to the temple, but not having any of my questions answered unnerved me. People just dodged those types of questions, claiming them to be too sacred to discuss outside the walls of the temple. I looked up the mountain meadows that was mentioned in the song, and 
was surprised to find a story about the church I'd never heard of. Essentially, what happened was a band of Mormon men ambushed a tribe of Native Americans in southern Utah back in the 1800s. It was since named the Mountain Meadows Massacre. What struck me as odd, though, was how much cover-up it seemed went behind the particular point in history. It's never mentioned by the church, and whenever I brought it up in church, it was shrugged off. Either people didn't know about it or didn't care to talk about it. There was even a statement about it with the church saying that they had nothing to do with it. And that Brigham Young, the prophet at the time, had ordered against the attack. Journal entries and eyewitness accounts told a very different story. One in which the order was given and carried out in secret. So the day came, and my friends and I all wore our mandatory uniforms for the choir. They had us sing our set of songs, and I was beginning to wonder if they'd changed their minds about the Bring Him Forth song, because it wasn't even on the program. It was almost over when an old man whom I'd never seen before and whom was not given any sort of introduction stepped out onto the stadium. A hush washed over us as he took the microphone and stood in the center of the stadium and addressed the pin-drop silent crowd of youth. He said that we were going to now perform the special numbers that had been practiced, and because of the sacredness of what was about to happen, that portion would not be filmed or recorded in any way. We, the choir, started with our number. Then, as we came to the second bar, most of the lights went out, and the dancers entered the stadium in a glow of candlelight that was brought out by a procession of children. I remember seeing an unusual mixture of pride and trepidation in the faces of the dancers as they prepared to perform their own unusual number. They were dancing to our song, if that's really what it was that they were doing with a series of strange, jerking movements. Several of the younger children even fell to the ground and started convulsing. I suppose it was part of the act because nobody came to their aid. But I remember the panic I felt watching them as I sang with the rest of the choir. When the number was over, a prayer was offered and we all went home. Nobody spoke about that night. I tried to bring it up later, but... Either nobody remembers or nobody is willing to talk about what happened in that stadium. I did my best to forget about it as well. I only bring this up now, over 10 years later, because I feel compelled to do so. I never spoke again about that song and dance number, but recent news has sparked it in my mind. I went back to my old neighborhood a few weeks ago to get in touch with a few of my friends and particularly an old scout leader whom I owe a lot for getting me through a particularly bad part of my childhood. When I tried to look him up, I found that a good portion of the neighbors had moved. There were still several old-timers around, but most of the families I went to church with were gone. I got in touch with one of those older neighbors to ask about where he and his family had gone, and she told me he'd moved to another country after getting a job at a temple as a security guard. Intrigued and slightly wary, I dug deeper. I made some phone calls and found that my old scout leader had been bounced around from church position to church position 
working as security, maintenance, custodial, and so on. Eventually, he'd been transferred around so many times that he got lost in the system and the trail went cold. Nobody knew what happened to him. I tracked him down through state records to a city in northern Utah, but none of the church records matched what was reported by the city. He and his family were there, but they weren't the same people I knew when I was growing up. He had ranked up in the church and was now a regional leader they call a stake president that was in charge of overseeing multiple wards in a community. The really strange part was their son, Michael. He was five or so years younger than me and would be about 20 now. That's the age when young men in the church generally devote two years of their life to serving a mission abroad to spread the word of God. When I asked about him, the look on their faces turned my stomach. They looked completely confused. They said that they'd never heard of a Michael and that their only son was Jacob, who was 16 and was looking forward to going on a mission in a few years. I went on to look at a few of my other neighbors and out of 10 families, three of them had been lost in the system, just as my old scout leader had been, and four of them had been completely wiped clean from any record. They no longer existed. I've asked around about them, but the people that are still around, none of them seem to remember those families. I don't think I was supposed to remember that song from the day of celebration, or the families I grew up with. But I remember them with such clarity that I can't believe for a moment that these are just figments of my imagination. The last two lines of the song still echo in my head, even as I write this. The sixth will be the temples as we spread across the land, and the seventh will open the lock to begin the end of man. There are more Mormon temples in the world now than ever before and every year they announce the groundbreaking of new ones. I believe that's the fulfillment of the sixth that the song mentions. Now people are missing, and I think that means we're coming up on whatever the seventh is. I wonder how much more is going on behind the scenes, and what does it mean for the world when they're done? Edit. I apologize, I was mistaken about the details of the Mountain Meadow Massacre. It's been a while since I last looked it up and it's seldom discussed around here. What actually happened was a band of Mormon men dressed up as Indians and attacked a group of American settlers as they were moving west. Men, women, and children were all killed. Well, if I've learned anything from this episode, I think I won't be working in a nursing home. Uh, maybe it is nice when we die, and I'm glad I don't have a little brother who went missing. Although I did grow up in the Mormon church, so I do relate a little bit with the last one. Not all the way, but just like a little bit. Either way, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening, boys and ghouls, and I hope you found these stories as creepy as I did. Don't forget to subscribe and click the notification button so you get updates for the newest daily creepy story. As always, the author of these stories will be credited in the description. 
feel free to send them some love over on Reddit, and I'll see you on the other side. Bye!